Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 20. We have divided the story of the flood into two parts. Last week was chapter 6 and 7. This week is chapter 8 and 9. Though we're going to end at a place in chapter 9 that may feel awkward to you if you know the story. But it's very important to pause there at the good news of what is happening in the text before the story of the fall. There's going to be another fall. We're going to talk about that next week in connection with the Tower of Babel. But we want to hear what God has done in a good way for his creation from this text. And so we end at verse 20 for that reason. This is, again, a bit of a lengthier reading than we're used to. I probably should stop saying that because that's going to happen often in Genesis. But it's an opportunity to remember that the public reading of Scripture is itself a means of grace, not as preliminaries for the sermon, but in this, we are confident that God, by His Spirit, is acting among us. Genesis chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird... Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is 2 Peter 3 verses 1 through 7. We're going to refer to this chapter a bit more than the verses we're reading, but we read this portion as our scripture reading. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for your goodness and grace to us in speaking in a way that we can hear and respond to. In order to rightly hear your word and respond to it, this must be your work among us, not something that depends, first of all, on our abilities as your people. And so we humbly pray for your Holy Spirit that we might hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us and that we might be shaped and formed as you work among us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I was praying a few moments ago in the pastoral prayer, and even more so as we sang Psalm 98, I was struck by the burden that I know many of us feel of the world, of life, of all that happens in this life. Both a sister in our midst who is grieving, the horrifying things we see on the news, and everything in between. And in the context of all of that horror, the things that are happening in the world, someone might wonder, someone might object, why are we talking about Noah's Ark? In fact, the way we're going to be talking about it, the emphases I plan to bring out, are such that we will not be directly referring to anything that is in the news right now. And I want you to know that that is purposeful. But it is not purposeful because we don't care about those things, because they do not matter, because they do not burden us. Indeed, they do matter, and it is in many ways precisely because those things matter that we do what we do as the Christian church on the Lord's Day. Why won't I be referring to anything specifically? Well, there's several reasons. Part of the main wisdom Scripture gives us in response to things we see on the news is that there is nothing new under the sun. And part of the wisdom of the Christian church and her posture in the world is to refuse to breathlessly respond to every last issue and concern. Part of our witness is pointing to that bigger way of being oriented to what is happening. There is another reason. I want you to know, personally, as a minister, that I am full of opinions about every last political and geopolitical issue out there. I am full of analyses and thoughts and opinions and arguments that I could give to you. My not talking about it is not because I don't think about or care about those things. Indeed, if you catch me in the right mood, as many of you have experienced, I'm sure I could offend you 
on any number of current issues by what my opinions are about them. I think they matter. But they matter as opinions I have as a citizen. Not, first of all, as a minister. As Christians, we are free to have different opinions, different thoughts, different priorities, different ways of orienting to things that are happening. And as a minister, it is very important that I not give the impression that I have the answers to those things. Even on issues that seem obvious to us, one of my favorite ways to offend you is to try to make it more complicated. Sometimes things aren't as obvious as we think. So my not speaking of them is not because I don't care about them. So part of our main posture is there's nothing new under the sun. It's also that I must be careful as a minister that I not suggest I have the answers. I don't. I need your wisdom as fellow Christians, fellow citizens, and all of those complicated questions. But the most important reason is this. Our hearts are often broken by the nature of what happens in the world. And human, as humans, we can feel trapped in it the darkness of it, the horror of it. We can be trapped precisely by the confusion of it. I don't even know what the answer is. If I were in charge, I don't know what I would do. That is its own kind of darkness. And what we need in the midst of that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need the gospel coming to us in a way that has a kind of timelessness, that is spoken to God's people through the centuries, facing horrors, the same as what we face, far greater than what we face. And more than that, it's not just what we need in the way of, you know, making us feel better or something. I don't want to dismiss that. Feeling better is good. But it's what we need that we might be challenged to live in a way shaped by these things. Because what the world needs is for the church to be light. And sometimes one of the most important ways we are light in the darkness is to stop talking about the darkness so much and rather to be formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that shines. And so we are gathered here around God's word with the faith-filled, hope-filled expectation that these things we do on the Lord's day are the way God changes us. He shapes us, to, he forms us to be light in a dark world. Whatever it is that is on your mind right now, it is because of those things that we do what we do this morning. We're not ignoring it. We're not setting it aside. It is because of them that we gather around God's word. So, this morning, not hiding from any of that, but fully aware of it, knowing all those things matter, I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ from Genesis chapter 8 and 9. That as the waters of the flood receded, God proclaims promises. First of all, a promise to creation. Second of all, a promise of new creation. And then third, a promise to remember. Three things this morning. As the water recedes, God proclaims promises. First, a promise to creation. We have divided the story of the flood in half. And the way we've divided it left us at the waters at their highest point and of the ark with Noah and his family and representatives of all of God's creation present on the ark. Waters covering the world and the ark floating. That's where we stopped. Already there, as I hope you'll recall, we heard good news. There was gospel in all of that. 
But now what happens? Verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Everything up until really verse 19 of this chapter is details now working out that point. And we're going to look at the details a little bit later. But I want you to see, first of all, the big picture of what happens. God causes the waters to subside. The flood is not the end of the story, but the water begins to go down. And we're told details how. We'll look at that in a moment. The waters subside. Noah and the animals go out on the earth. And then what happens? God makes a covenant with Noah. And in that covenant, God promises something. He says it a few different ways. He makes a promise never to destroy every living thing. I think we ought to hear that as its own kind of promise. The focus is that he promises never to destroy everything with a flood. And don't just hear that as a weird technicality. I mean, have you ever felt this way? Okay, again, 12-year-olds, you're right when you feel this way. You're like, is that really that great of a promise? There's a lot of ways God could destroy everything. Why is it that interesting to me that he won't destroy it again with the flood? Come on, you've worried that before, right? Well, I actually think he is promising more than just not with a flood for two reasons. There is the place where he says, never again destroy every living thing. But also, because the flood was not just a means of doing something. The flood was the unleashing of chaos. It was the imagery of those primordial waters at creation. Remember, at the very beginning of chapter 1, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. These are the waters of chaos, of chaos and darkness unleashed, and God is promising that will never happen. Chaos will never win. That those primordial floodwaters, the undoing of creation, will never happen. So God gives this promise in the covenant, this is never going to happen again. In fact, it didn't actually happen this time, right? The chaos didn't win. He also gives obligations. He gives them a a, a renewal of the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. He says, I put the creatures all under you, similar to telling Adam and Eve to take dominion over creation. He also gives them the obligation to not kill. And it it is hard. Maybe this is just me, so forgive me if that's the case. It is hard to not hear God being a little bit snarky here when he says this. Like, Clearly, I wasn't clear enough with you all. You shouldn't be killing each other. Because remember, that was the problem before the flood. It was violence. That's what then caused God to unleash the flood, actually putting an end to that violence. And then he gives the command, you ought not to be killing each other. God's word speaks what should have been obvious, and our sin makes the obvious seem not obvious. So God gives this very clear, definitive, newly uh, phrased uh, or newly worded command not to kill. Chapter 9, verse 4. Excuse me, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. And then verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So he gives the promise, never again to unleash the chaos waters of the flood. He gives the obligation, the renewal of the creation mandate, fill the earth, no killing, And then he gives a sign for that covenant. He lays down his war bow in the clouds. And here's where I hope you say, wait a minute, it didn't say war bow, it said rainbow. It didn't say rainbow. What did it say, actually? It said, my bow. 
Bow simply means it's the bow of a of hunter, of a warrior. It's referring to the bow that would be used in archery. If you think of a rainbow, it's fairly obvious. You can see that symbolism. But the language is not rainbow in particular. It's simply bow. God's war bow had been aimed at the creation. That's what the flood was. And he has laid down his bow. He is no longer aiming it at the creation. And therefore, when we see it, we see it laid down. And we see, therefore, God's promise not to aim it at the world again. And then, after that covenant is made, we are told that Noah plants a vineyard. And we have, in the imagery of a vineyard, the imagery of peace, of prosperity, of order, If you live in a time and place where a vineyard is even possible, you live in a time and place of great prosperity for which you should be thankful. Because it takes time. It takes years of of peace, of order, for the vines to age, for wine to be made, for all of those things to be possible. And that is, in Scripture, the imagery of rest, of peace, of creation as God made it to be. Thus far, the story It is striking that in all of that, God makes promises to his creation. I hope you notice that, that when God makes these promises, he makes much of the fact that he is including all of creation. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And then he says this, never will I ever, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And then he emphasizes this covenant being with every living creature. Verse 9 of chapter 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. The point here is in many ways quite simple, but I want us to savor it for a moment. God's covenant, the language of covenant, of relationship, of binding himself to his creatures, includes in a very pointed, direct way every part of his creation. And he goes to great lengths in these verses, speaking the language of covenant. Think of God's covenant with Israel. We speak of the covenant of grace. We speak of God's covenant promises to us. He makes much of that language of covenant applying to the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. Indeed, as my Old Testament professor in seminary points out in something he wrote about this chapter, there is really a kind of blurring together of God's covenant with creation and the language of the covenant of grace. Now, in theological ways, we like to distinguish these things, and there's good reasons to distinguish them, but sometimes they get overly separated. God makes a covenant with all of creation, and what was that covenant in response to? Noah built an altar. In fact, we are told here that the Lord uh, smelled the pleasing aroma and then said in his heart, as though God is now pleased in response to this offering. But God was already pleased with Noah. That was the case from the beginning of the story. What is God pleased with now because of the offering? His creation. Noah is functioning as a mediator, foreshadowing Christ, what Christ would do, mediating between God and his sinful creation. 
But more than that, what is it that Noah offers in response to which God makes all these promises but burnt offerings? Offerings that the scriptures are very clear are promises of what Christ would do, of his death, his sacrifice on our behalf. And what we need to see mashed together in this text in a way that I think we too often separate is that these offerings foreshadowing Christ are the offerings in response to which God said, I make a covenant with all of creation. I think this needs to amaze us a bit more than it does. God's love for his creation. God's care for his creation. The work of Christ having in view the restoring of all things. As Paul will say in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. As Paul says in Ephesians that God is in Christ reconciling all things to himself. That promise goes all the way back to here. That God makes the promise to his creation in response to sacrifices that foreshadowed Christ. God's creation is good. He loves it. And in redemption he acts to restore it. We must love this as being at the foundation of the entire story of the Bible. The foundation of all that God will later do is that he loves his creation. Here is the foundation for the goodness of your ordinary callings in every area of life. Here is the foundation for the goodness of all the hard work of relationships, friendships, community, of marriage, of family, of children, for all of those daily difficult things that you are engaged in, the deep goodness of them is rooted all the way back to here, that God creates the world, he proclaims it good, and after the flood, he makes his covenant saying these things are what he is covenanting with, all of creation. And in some mysterious way, when he acts in Christ, it is to affirm and restore all of that. Indeed, that's the second thing we must see together. That in this promise to creation, God is in fact making a promise all the way through history. It's obviously for the future, right? It's what a promise is doing. But what I emphasize is all the way to the end of the story. And if you're going to imagine, picture, um, if you're going to desire, long for, live toward the end of the story in the right way, you have to get this part of the story right. I promised you details. Let's do this again. Back at the beginning of chapter 8, the ark is floating on top of the waters. It is raining. And we have emphasized that up to that point, all of the imagery was the imagery of undoing creation. Remember that from last week. There was sort of an order of undoing the creation days. And so those floodwaters are unraveling creation. But now we find that the opposite happens. We are told, after verse 1, verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and rain from the heavens was restrained. We imagine the rain ending and the clouds parting. Let there be light. And then we are told that the unpouring of waters from above and below is restrained. We remember the dividing of the waters above and the waters below in the days of creation. And then as the waters recede, land appears. Why does the text go through so many details to describe these steps? Well, I'm telling you now. As we go through, the waters recede, the land appears. Now I remember the next day of creation, the waters and the land dividing. And then... Birds are sent out 
you know, all these details about the raven and the ravens flying around and then another dove flying around and another dove flying around and then the dove doesn't come back. That was one of the creation days, was it not? Birds in the heavens flying in the new creation. And then as the waters finally recede and the ark lands on the earth, what happens but that animals go out and fill the earth, the sixth day of creation. And God says to Noah and his family, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, echoing the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve. In all of this, there is a direct echo in a way you are meant to hear and enjoy of the creation being redone, the creation being remade, that yes, God has acted in judgment, but what does his judgment do? It renews. And in all of those steps, as the waters recede, there is this imagery of the renewal of God's creation. In fact, back at chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The word wind here is the Hebrew word ruach, and what's fun about that word is that it translates in English wind, breath, spirit. And in fact, back in Genesis 1 verse 1, when it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, it's the exact same word. Here translated wind, but it's the exact same word. In Hebrew, that echo would have been heard, especially if we don't divide this up into separate Bible stories or read it as one story. You're going to hear that one word being said, that here is that same ruach, wind, spirit over the waters. And if you really want to have fun with that connection, The story just told us there was a dove hovering, flying around over the waters, unable to find land. The dove, imagery of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to buy that one. I think you should, but you don't have to. But that Hebrew word is the same, and that connection is meant to be made. That all these things are echoes of new creation. And what happens in that new creation but finally rest? Noah's name meant rest, or it echoed the word for rest. His father named him Noah in the hope of rest. And the vineyard then is all of that imagery. God has remade his world, and the result is the rest of that new creation. Now, next week, or not in two weeks, we will see there is a fall. It goes bad again, but we must remember to pause here. God has made the world new. And brothers and sisters, in God doing that, in all of those echoes, what is being emphasized is the idea of a pattern. That there is a pattern to God's acting in the world. And that pattern is that when God brings judgment, it is to bring renewal. That God's judgment is for cleansing. That when God judges the world, it is acting to renew the world. And this is why Peter, in his second letter, draws on the example of the flood to speak of the final judgment that the church awaits. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, there will be scoffers who are saying, where is the promise of his appearing? I look around, it's not happening. The world is just going as it was. And Peter says, remember, that's how it was before the flood. And indeed, before the flood, when God said there would be 120 years, Peter tells us that that delay was a delay of grace, of mercy. And that God's delay now is a delay of grace and mercy. It is the time of mission, the time of repentance, the time of the kingdom of people turning to God in Christ. And Peter tells us then that the judgment to come will be a judgment of cleansing, of fire, 
that results of in which later in the chapter is of a new heavens and a new earth, he says, where righteousness dwells. That the judgment to come will not be a rejection of the earth, a rejection of creation, but it will rather be God's renewal of his creation. And Peter says the way we know that is the case is from what the flood did. The flood is an example of what the final judgment will be. When the flood came, did God annihilate the earth? No. He cleansed the earth. He renewed the earth. Why? Because God loves his creation, and his whole plan is to restore his creation. Likewise, as we look to the future, as Christians, as the church, as we look to the future, it must be shaped by Genesis 8 and 9. When Christ returns, what will God do? Destroy the earth, and we'll all float as spirits on clouds. No. Genesis 8 and 9. What will God do? Resurrection bodies, graves empty, the world made new, the life of creation as God made it to be, restored for his people, the marriage supper of the Lamb, feasting in the presence of God and with his people, that the future, God promises, is earthy. It is creation affirming. And we need Genesis 8 and 9 to bolster, to strengthen, to be the foundation for that hope. Now, Genesis 8 and 9 also tell us what is the goal of that renewed creation. It's the first thing Noah does. It's worship. An altar, sacrifice in the fellowship of God. Likewise, the goal of the new creation is with God at the center and fellowship with God, beholding His glory, dwelling in His presence. But none of that is to the exclusion of the good of creation, but rather the renewal and cleansing of creation. In the congregation of Christ, you need... The gospel proclaimed in terms of Genesis 8 and 9. You need the gospel understood in terms of when God judges, he renews. You need the gospel felt, experienced in a way shaped by Genesis 8 and 9. Genesis 8 and 9 and the renewal of creation, this is why when a loved one dies, we grieve and we lay the body in the grave and we do so in the hope of resurrection. We don't simply say, they're in heaven now so everything's fine. Genesis 8 and 9 won't let us say that. Because Genesis 8 and 9 says God loves his creation, that God loves our bodies, that the gospel is that he does not abandon our bodies, he does not abandon this created life, and that the promise of the gospel is the resurrection, the restoration of this embodied life. And so the hope we express as we lay the body in the grave is the hope of resurrection, and that is the shape of hope that frees you to grieve and mourn. Genesis 8 and 9 lies at the foundation of that. Because God says he will not abandon his good creation. And so he would want us to grieve death and to do so in the hope of resurrection. It also shapes how we live. There has been the temptation constantly in the history of the Christian church to say God doesn't care what you do with your bodies. All he really cares about is your soul, your spirit. All he cares about is spiritual things. And there's two ways that error goes. One of those ways is the way of pietism. To say, God doesn't really care what you do with your bodies, so if you ever start enjoying something, there must be a problem. Right? That is demonic evil. 
God created the creation, and he desires us to enjoy his good creation. And so this affirmation of the body in the way of the resurrection affirms the enjoyment of God's good creation. But there's another way that error goes. There have been those who have said, and Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 5, there are those who have said, God doesn't care what you do with your body, so just do whatever. The body's going to decay, go to the grave. It's all about, you know, souls going to heaven, so what you do with your body doesn't matter. When Paul argues, for example, against going to a prostitute, the reason he gives is the resurrection. And he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The resurrection says what you do with your bodies matters. You glorify God with your body. You enjoy God's good creation with your body. And you are holy and righteous with your body. That is the right use of God's good creation, both in its enjoyment and in the rejection of that which is destructive, is affirmed by the resurrection, by God's good creation, by God saying as the floodwaters receded that he renews his creation because it is good and matters to him. But you see, in the midst of that promise of new creation, you often feel as though you are still back at Genesis 7. Let's say verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The third thing we need this morning, our conclusion. A promise that God remembers. Because you see, we can say all of this, we must say all of this. God's promise that when he judges, he restores. There's new creation to come. God loves our bodies. He cares about the creation. But then we look around. We say, but we're still on this side of all of that. And as Second Peter says, people will say, it feels like it's taking forever. We often feel in the midst of the circumstances of life as though we are like Noah in the tumult of the waters in the chaos of sin and brokenness and darkness. And so this text proclaims to you the good news that God remembers. Chapter 8, verse 1. It's like bookends for our passage. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that are with him in the ark. And then when God makes his covenant and he lays his war bow in the clouds, he says... When I bring clouds over the earth, verse 14 and 15 of chapter 9, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. To remember. It doesn't just mean that God will have it in his mind. God doesn't forget things. That's not how it works. What does remember mean? It means he will act in terms of it. He will relate to you in terms of what he has said, what he has promised. He will remain, keep you bound to himself in covenant. That the language of remember is about God's acting in time and history and space in terms of what he has spoken to you. And the announcement of this is that when Noah was there in the midst of the flood, God remembered, and he says, looking to the future, he will remember. Well, brothers and sisters, let us just hear those words as promise. God remembers. He remembers his promises. He remembers his covenant. He remembers you. 
one could summarize every difficult thing we experience for which we need the gospel as needing the reminder that God remembers. In the midst of suffering, all sorts of mysteries, puzzles, things we can't explain, God remembers his promises, his covenant. He is acting in terms of them. You are bound to him, and that comes to you as promise. Aren't there many seasons of life where one of the ways we could summarize the feeling is the feeling of being forgotten? A season of life where we feel like we're contributing, doing less than we wish we could do. A a task, a calling, a career that feels small and insignificant in the eyes of the world. No one seems to care about it. Matters of age, matters of opportunity, of circumstance, where it's as though no one remembers us. God remembers. What does remember mean? Not just in his mind, but that he acts in terms of what he has promised you, is in fellowship with you, keeps you bound to himself in covenant. You feel small and insignificant, God remembers. Maybe you think that feels too small. Don't. For some of us right now, it's the main thing. But there are other ways we could make the point. God's people caught up in the tumult of the nations, in the midst of the horrors of what people do to each other, of wars and rumors of wars and conflicts and power misuse and destructiveness and the sense of, I don't even know what the answer is. If I could imagine a perfectly righteous government, I have no idea what they should do. The world is just so messed up. And the horror of that and the fear of that and the lamenting of that and the tears because of that, all of that, much like the fear that the waters of chaos will never subside. God remembers. And he remembers his promise to set the world right. And he remembers his promise to fix what has been broken. And he will keep that promise. Or what is the Christian practice of laying the body in the grave, but the expectation, the expression of the hope that God will remember, that he will not abandon your soul to Sheol, to the place of the dead, to the grave, but he will remember. All of that, dear brothers and sisters, is embedded, flowing from what God does here in Genesis 8 and 9, remembering his covenant, renewing his creation, and announcing it as a promise for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your promise. We lament before you the many ways in which we need that promise and the difficulty, the challenge of how your word speaks in to so many different circumstances of life. But we acknowledge by faith that your promise is enough and we plead with you to remember, to remember all that you have done and all that you have spoken and thereby to keep us in fellowship with you by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.